So it's my pleasure to introduce Sanjeev Shah as our speaker today. So Sanjeev did his internal medicine uh, training at Johns Hopkins, and he stayed on there to complete a nephrology fellowship. After that, he joined faculty at the University of Wisconsin and is currently on faculty at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, each institution that Dr. Shah goes to, he's won numerous teaching awards for his incredible knowledge of physiology and his amazing clinical acumen. He's absolutely brilliant, and he is the doctor that I want at bedside if my mom or dad was sick, and he's the doctor that I call if I have a complex clinical question that I need help with. Um, so it's my pleasure to turn over the microphone to one of my greatest mentors, my clinical ideal, and my dear friend, Dr. Shah. It's going to be pretty hard to live up to, so uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully this goes well. So uh, I'd just like to say thank you, first of all, uh, to the Departments of Critical Care for allowing me the opportunity to speak here today. And uh, certainly just like to say on a personal note, it's really a pleasure to be at the University of Maryland, which I don't have to tell you all is really known as a leader in the field of critical care, both nationally uh, and internationally. So with that in mind, uh, and given that you're world famous, uh, I'll determine what you think about me, but uh, which I'm not. But uh, I'd like to make two disclaimers. The first is uh, I have no financial entanglements. I certainly wish I did at this point in my career, but I don't. And the second is that uh, I'm not an intensivist. I'm a, nef I'm a nephrologist. But that being said, the interaction between critical care and nephrology is fairly tight in, in the ICU, especially as it relates to management of fluid and electrolytes. And so it's with this perspective that I'm going to try to talk to you about the topic that I was asked to discuss today, which is hyperlactatemia, with the goal to specifically focus on the pathophysiology of this relatively ubiquitous um, lab abnormality that we all see and co-manage in the ICU, hopefully using it as a springboard to, to talk about sort of how we can better treat our patients or future directions and how we can treat our patients. So this is a... This is fairly representative of a common console scenario that I will see at Penn uh, on the ICU service. I'm sure you all see much more of it than I do. 53-year-old uh, gentleman with a history of diabetes mellitus, uh, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, coronary artery disease, and IV drug use, presented to our uh, ER with altered mental status in the setting of shock. Uh, in the ER, he was resuscitated with crystalloid, uh, rapidly placed on norepinephrine and vasopressin drips, and then also placed on a bicarb drip in response to the labs that were initially drawn in the emergency room. After that period of time, he was transferred up to our MICU, at which point we were called. You can see that the blood pressure got marginally better, 90 over 50. Pulse is still 112, tachycardic. At this point, the patient was intubated, has a had a rising uh, FiO2, uh, uh, an oxygen requirement, PEEP of 15. And when labs were drawn, we, show, we were able to see that this patient had a pH of 7.1, a bicarb of 10, on a bicarb drip, PCO2 of 45, um, uh, which we were told was in line with their strategy of uh, permissive hypercapnia, uh, lactate of 17 and a creatinine of 1.6 milligrams per deciliter. Chest X-ray showed evidence of bilateral opacities concerning at least for development of ARDS and microbiology when it came back a few hours later showed evidence of MRSA. So I'm not sure about you, but when I see a patient like this or when I'm presented a patient like this, initially brings up sort of a couple of knee-jerk reactions in my mind, both short-term and long-term in terms of what I'd like to do for the management of this patient. So in the short-term, given that this patient has a pH of 7.1, a serum bicarbonate of 10 with very low buffer capacity despite being on a bicarb drip, and very little room on the ventilator to essentially uh, uh, increase ventilation due to 
either impaired lung mechanics or a strategy that we're trying to pursue uh, to prevent volume trauma, my options are somewhat limited. And so I think most nephrologists around the country and probably around the world would agree with me if they had the resources, they would probably start this patient on CRRT. And the goal of that is, of course, to be able to temporize the patient uh, uh, while, we, while we try to figure out exactly what's going on. More long-term, however, the lactate of 17, for which essentially I've been called to manage, pretends a couple different things. Number one, the mortality for this patient when I see that seems extremely high, as I'm sure you all know. But more importantly, it applies to a very specific pathophysiology, which is the idea, at least simplistically in my mind when I'm hearing this case, sort of in that knee-jerk reaction, of some degree of oxygen debt and some degree of anaerobic metabolism that I need to identify either happening locally or globally uh, in order to be able to reverse with the hope of hopefully, again, increasing that oxygen delivery to that portion of the body or globally such that I can decrease this lactate concentration and hopefully improve this patient's outcome. And what I hope to share with you over the next 40 minutes or so is that this type of thinking, at least my type of thinking, what I originally used to do through internship, residency, fellowship, and even a couple years ago as an attending, uh, probably is much more simplistic than what's going on in, in this patient's body in terms of the physiology. And hopefully uh, uh, what I'll be able to show you is through sort of unearthing of literature that we've actually had in our possession for the last 50 years or so, uh, be able to show you a much more nuanced picture of what's potentially going on, although we don't have the complete answers. So I'm going to tell you right up front, some of what I'm going to tell you by the end of this talk is going to seem fairly controversial. It may make you want to yell. Uh, it probably is not in line with what we all do clinically every day, even though what I'm going to say here and when I'm, the data I'm going to show you in terms of what we do at the patient's bedside. But nonetheless, I hope it will serve as a springboard for some discussion as to how we can potentially interpret this rather ubiquitous lab abnormality more rationally. So as a nephrologist, when I'm called to see this patient, and if I have to specifically uh, focus on the lactate for which you know, my specialty is asked to manage, I think there are five major questions that I would want to have answered for this particular patient. Number one, I would want to know what are the mechanisms of hyperlactatemia in my particular patient with the goal of being able to potentially leverage that information to num answer my second question, which is what are the clinical implications for this patient and what can I do to manage this patient more effectively? Number three, let's be honest, uh, I'm kind of a dialysis monkey, so I've been called to initiate CRRT. So my question is, does the lactate really account for the acidosis that we're seeing? And if so, is there a role for bicarbonate therapy? And if there isn't a role for bicarbonate therapy, should I at least even offer something that could potentially even, quote unquote, clear the lactate? Uh, if, if that would be a benefit. Since we seem to know from most studies that a very high lactate, usually greater than four, but certainly higher than that portends a very high mortality. So would artificially lowering that lactate by whatever means, pharmacologically or through CRRT, uh, be a benefit to my patient? So to answer these questions sort of in a rational manner, this is going to be the outline of my talk. I'm going to talk to you specifically about the traditional view of lactate production. I'm going to contrast that with what we know about the modern data between hyperlactatemia and its relationship to O2 delivery. We're going to talk a little bit, and I promise you I'll try not to bore you with the biochemistry of this, but the biochemistry of acidosis and whether that's completely correlated with hyperlactatemia or not. Hopefully pull this all together to talk about sort of a more nuanced and new version of uh, lactate production in the ICU the clinical implications of this treatment, and then what's on the future uh, horizon in terms of future directions. 
So from a basic biochemistry perspective, when we talk about lactate, we have, or, you know, we have often thought about it essentially as a byproduct of anaerobic metabolism, such that when we have an absence of oxygen, uh, the conversion of pyruvate to lactate essentially allows for the regeneration of, can everybody see this? Or do I have to use a pointer? No? No, sorry. Does this work or no? Okay, all right. Sometimes I get yelled at by the medical students at Penn because I use the pointer and I get horrible reviews because it doesn't show up on video capture. Um, so conversion of pyruvate to lactate usually regenerates NAD and allows for creation of ATP. So in some way, we can think about uh, lactate production essentially as a means of keeping glycolysis going and thus allowing us to meet the energetic needs of the cell or potentially the organism when there is no O2 that's available to produce ATP. So from a whole organism standpoint or a tissue standpoint, we have sort of, as clinicians, taken this biochemical pathway of uh, anaerobic metabolism and applied it essentially at the tissue level to say that when there is evidence of cellular hypoxia, it must mean an imbalance between essentially O2 supply and O2 demand such that there's anaerobic metabolism. And there's nothing controversial about this. We're saying that when there is a low O2 state, for whatever reason, there is evidence of a high lactate production. But what's curious, and what we've done as clinicians over the last 50 years or so, has also taken the converse to be true. That is, every time we see a high lactate, we assume that it also means a low O2 state. As a corollary of this, and nephrologists are really guilty of this, is that we have also stated that lactate that we see is actually a surrogate for lactic acid. That is, the thing that's being produced in the tissues is lactic acid, which is then being broken down into lactate and H+. And so lactate is essentially a surrogate for clinical acidosis, which in some models of acid-base is considered to be a higher anion gap, which has its utility and its downsides. But more importantly, sort of flowing from this stepwise model, we've also stated that in order to correct uh, hyperlactatemia, potentially by correction of low O2, low O2 state by increasing O2 delivery, we will also ameliorate acidosis. So is this rendering of physiology actually accurate? So if I compare my theoretical construct, which I've just presented to you, which is, I think the way most medical textbooks uh, and teaching sort of implies, with what we see clinically at the bedside, there are some interesting observations that at least need to be reconciled. So the first of these observations, at least in animal models of sepsis as well as patients with sepsis, is that the majority of lactate that we see that is produced, if we look at it organ by organ, actually comes from the lungs, which I think you'll agree is not an anaerobic organ, at least it shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. Number two, if we take it just at face value that sepsis is a hypermetabolic state such that the degree of oxygen demand is outweighing the amount of oxygen supply, Based on the Fick equation, one would expect that O2 tension, at least in the, in the venous side, should be low. We'll talk about mitochondrial rewiring uh, later, but if we were to take this at face value, we, we would expect in sepsis for venous O2 tension to be low. But in many cases of sepsis, we see that venous O2 tension can actually be high. And lastly, you know, we often talk about lactic acidosis, such that lactate equals clinical acidosis, and yet 50% of the time, lactate production occurs without a significant increase in the anion gap. Now, there are definitely, def definitely issues with our analysis of the anion gap, which I won't get into, but it's sort of curious that we correlate clinical acidosis always with hyperlactatemia. So I guess the question at this point is, can we reconcile sort of this O2 paradox that I'm presenting to you? 
Well, the first sort of blow to the idea that lactate production is solely dependent on cellular hypoxia comes, interestingly enough, from the exercise literature. So as early as 1967, Stainsby and Welch were able to do a very nice series of experiments in dog gracilis muscle. They excised it, and they subjected it to isotonic contraction again and again and again in the face of uh, constant blood flow. And what they found were the results that you see on the right there. That is, if we looked at the x-axis as look, the positive portion of the x-axis as representing that amount of lactate which is exported from the muscle, you can see that in the first 30 minutes or so, as contractions increase in frequency or, or uh, continue, we see that lactate production increases, as would, be one, as would be expected in the face of a constant O2 supply. But what's curious is that after that 30-minute mark, we actually see lactate production fall significantly. And at some points, actually, the muscle starts to begin to take up lactate something that's very much at odds with what we would expect if someone was having purely anaerobic metabolism. The second blow to this idea of anaerobic metabolism being the sole cause of uh, hyperlactatemia actually comes from a similar set of experiments done in dog gracilis muscle, this time looking at redox chemistry. And I'm going to sort of walk us through this because I know the slide looks relatively busy, but it's, it's really kind of an interesting finding. So just from basic biochemical principles, we know that for oxidative phosphorylation to continue unabated, we need an electron sink such that something like oxygen can accept, um, sorry, accept electrons and ultimately allow NADH to be oxidized into NAD. And why is that important? Because in the Krebs cycle, okay, you can see there are multiple points at which NADH plus H is present. If NADH rises, that is, it's not able to be converted into this form through a, uh, an electron since the, that's able to accept electrons, this NADH will rise, and essentially this system will no longer run clockwise. It will begin to back up and run counterclockwise. More importantly, the conversion of pyruvate to lactate, which is the step that's present in anaerobic portions of glycolysis, is predicated on the ratio of NADH to NAD such that if there is no oxygen acceptor, NADH increases relative to NAD, and by mass action, pyruvate moves to lactate. So why am I bringing this up? Well, if we had somebody undergoing isotonic contraction of the muscle, again, concerning for anaerobic metabolism, at this point, where the lactate is highest, we would expect that the ratio of NADH to NAD would be high, okay? There is no electron sink, NADH is rising, NADH is is causing conversion of pyruvate to lactate. What these investigators found was essentially the NADH to NAD ratio was low and not high. Again, striking a blow against the idea that this could only be due to anaerobic metabolism. And finally, if we were to look at uh, uh, this model of lactate, hyperlactatemia, that is anaerobic metabolism causing lactate production, we would expect that if we were to sample the PO2 tension in the tissue, essentially it would be low. And we know from various animal studies the critical threshold for anaerobic glycolysis to occur is 0.5 millimeters of mercury oxygen tension within the muscle. So a couple of years later, in the 1980s, investigators actually took a look again at their favorite model, dog gracilis muscle, subjected it to, again, contractions over a period of time, what they were able to show is at this point, which represents only 10% of your maximal workload, or VO2, they were able to show, show a statistically significant increase in lactate production. Under these, criteria, 
under these conditions, when they sampled the mitochondrial PO2, they found that it was 2 millimeters of mercury. Again, far higher than that anaerobic threshold. Now, one could argue that perhaps there was some sampling error. You didn't actually sample pure, you know, there was some heterogeneity in how uh, the PO2 was distributed within the, within the tissue itself. So to eliminate that, these investigators subjected this muscle to uh, adenosine, which is a vasodilator, rendering the muscle hyperemic. And even under those conditions, when the tissue O2 tension increased to around 10 millimeters of mercury, we see that there is a statistically, statistically uh, important increase in lactate production. Again, just another nail in the coffin of at least attributing lactate production solely to anaerobic metabolism. So how does this relate to our patients at the bedside? So if we look at patients with uh, uh, sepsis, you know, there is... There have been multiple studies done that have looked at the relationship between O2 delivery, O2 consumption, and lactate production. And this is graph here on the sort of upper left represents what we normally see in patients without sepsis physiology, normal patients. That is that there is some degree of a critical O2 delivery threshold below which, you know, there is a linear relationship between O2 consumption and O2 delivery. And this is the break point at which lactate production begins to increase. We contrast that with early sepsis, uh, especially studies done in animals as well as patients in the earlier stages of sepsis. This is what, these are the graphs that have been usually produced. That is, this threshold is usually shifted more to the right, suggesting that you need a higher critical O2 delivery before you, be, to be able to prevent lactate production. Now, what's interesting about these two graphs is that when they actually looked at the study, which was done by Ronco and colleagues, published, I believe, in JAMA in 1993, they looked at a cohort of septic patients and non-septic patients and compared sort of these three parameters, looking at essentially oxygen consumption, oxygen delivery, and lactate production, and tried to see what type of graph they would get. And what they found, interestingly enough, was that the graph they found was not this, but rather this. And in fact, if they graphed these variables uh, uh, against you know, O2 consumption versus O2 delivery in this cohort, and graph the same variables in this cohort, you could essentially superimpose them. So why is that the case? Well, these investigators noted that, first of all, these patients, unlike these earlier studies, were usually taken in the later stages of sepsis. These patients had a higher degree of sedation. They had a higher degree of anesthetics on board. Um, uh, they also had lower cognitive function on average in terms of their uh, neurological uh, scores. But interestingly enough, they also accounted, unlike these prior studies, which were all pooled estimates, they accounted for body mass and sort of normalized it per kilogram of body mass. And when they were able to do so, essentially, this relationship was found to be artifactual and instead changed into this relationship, suggesting again that there is no, at least in the later stages of sepsis from this one study, no critical threshold, uh, no increased critical threshold for O2 delivery that would explain uh, why you get hyperlactatemia. From the prior study, the, the discrepancy, there was, sorry, there was really a lack of data looking at lactate specifically. So other studies have actually tried to study the relationship between lactate, uh, oxygen delivery, and, um, uh, uh, and venous saturation. And in this particular study where they took 50 patients with myocardial infarction as well as 50 patients with uh, sepsis, they tried to see if there was a correlation between lactate uh, production and O2 delivery, as well as lactate production and venous uh, oxygen saturation. And you can see here that, at least in these septic patients, there was no real relationship that they could find. 
The same relationship was found in those patients with cardiogenic shock with acute myocardial infarction as well. And lastly, just like in the exercise physiology that I just talked about, these investigators have looked at sepsis, lactate, and actually oxygen tension within the tissue. So theoretically, one would expect, if we take mitochondrial rewiring or shunting out of the picture uh, as, a, as a etiology, sepsis should theoretically have low tissue O2 levels. Multiple studies have shown actually the O2 tension when measured in muscle biopsies of patients are actually greater than 30 millimoles uh, of mercury. So again, far above that hypoxic or anoxic threshold where you would initiate uh, uh, anaerobic glycolysis. So at this point, there are some critical questions for critical care and lactate production. So questions that I would have if I was seeing this presentation uh, or I was reading this literature would be, does oxygenation have any role whatsoever in the production of lactate? Because based on our clinical gestalt, it would seem that despite what I've told you, oxygenation would seem to have some degree of uh, importance in production of lactate. If I'm arguing that anaerobic metabolism is not the sole cause of hyperlactatemia, then what is the cause of hyperlactatemia in our critically ill patients that we see? And more importantly, um, uh, since we're often called to manage acidosis, what is the cause of acidosis if I've just told you that lactate production appears to consume a proton rather than add one to the system? Well, this is where we're going to talk about a ba basic biochemistry, and I promise it's not going to be biochemistry boot camp. I think it's going to be relatively painless. So basic biochemistry of glycolysis is that glucose plus 2 ADP, illustrated here, plus 2 phosphate goes to lactate plus 2 ATP plus H2O. So why do I bring this up? So if we look at this equation, in no part of this equation do you see a hydrogen ion. So you'll note that the net hydrogen balance in this equation is essentially zero. So lactate ion production, if we look at just the last step, actually consumes a hydrogen ion. Two, hydrogen, two pyruvates with two hydrogen are what form two lactate. So we're not actually producing lactic acid. What we've been telling people over and over and over has actually been untrue. So where does the acidosis of lactic acidosis come from? Because we do see acidosis with lactate. That's, undoubt, that's undoubtedly true. But it's not from sort of this simplistic rendition of lactic acidosis that we've been telling people. So I found this very nice article from 1978, which I think nobody's really looked at for a long time. But somebody was really passionate about lactic acidosis and disproving this idea that lactic acid is what is turned into lactate in H+. And so they were a very nicely able to show that when you take ATP and you hydro hydrolyze it, it actually forms a hydrogen ion. And so the overall reaction for glycolysis is actually glucose plus 2 ADP plus 2 PI goes to 2 ATP, 2 H2O, and lactate. But in between this step, this hydrolysis of ATP releases two hydrogen ions. So as this is recycled, these hydrogen ions are not, and this is what causes the lactic acidosis. So why is that important? Well, it's important because if you have glycolysis of any form going on, the amount of ATP that you're dependent on uh, to sustain your energy needs from that glycolysis will determine how much H plus you present, you, you produce. Let's contrast this with the Krebs cycle. So this is the overall cycle, overall reaction for the Krebs cycle. Glucose plus O2 plus 36 ADP, 36 PI, goes to 36 ATP plus 42 H2O plus CO2. That's not really important, but what is important is you'll see at no point is now hydrogen being released. This is a net even 
uh, process for hydrogen balance, which means that if the majority of your ATP is being produced above, uh, the majority of your ATP is being produced not due to anaerobic metabolism, that is, some, there is some degree of aerobic metabolism going on, uh, you will really not get a high degree of hydrogen ion production. So what are the implications of this chemistry? And I'll begin to tie this all together. This is the basic schema of how lactate production occurs in the body. We're going to talk about five mechanisms, A through E. So mechanism A, okay, if this is the mitochondria and this is everything outside in the cytosol, is that if there is an inhibition uh, of O2, uh, of access to O2 in some form, then essentially you're going to have a reduction in O2 availability and utilization, and you're going to see a high lactate level. That is, most of the metabolites are going to be shunted in this direction. If you have a deficiency in uh, pyruvate dehydrogenase, the enzyme which converts pyruvate to acetyl-CoA, which can be seen in thiamine deficiency or can be seen uh, due to use of various medications which can block this particular pathway, you're also going to see um, uh, hyperlactatemia. If you see an increase in your NADH to NAD ratio, right here, mechanism C, you'll see hyperlactatemia, whereas that evident, those patients that come in with alcohol poisonings, either ethanol, methanol, ethylene glycol, all of these will have an increased redox ratio of this and will cause hyperlactatemia. Finally, if you have something that's increasing flux through this, flux through this pathway, that is, increasing um, glucose production either through uh, uh, glycogen breakdown or um, some other pathway which in between here and here in pyruvate causes this flux to increase, you'll see an increased lactate production. Finally, if you have a decreased clearance, that is somebody with liver disease, you're going to see this as well. So why do I bring this up? Well, in 1961, there was a gentleman, Mass General, named Huckabee, who came up with sort of a schema of lactic acidosis, which, or hyperlactatemia, I should say, which has been forgotten. We've usually relied on the schema presented by Cohen and Woods in 1976, a type A lactic acidosis and a type B lactic acidosis. But Huckabee actually broke lactic acidosis into two forms, that is, hyperlactatemia associated with a normal pyruvate to any py lactate to pyruvate ratio, which is usually 10 to 1, which implies in turn a normal NADH to NAD ratio, or hyperlactatemia associated with an elevated lactate to pyruvate ratio, far above that 10 to 1 ratio, again associated with a very high NADH to NAD ratio. To clarify this, this is the schema, okay, the major reaction, pyruvate going to lactate. If we write the equilibria first, if we remember from chemistry, we can write it like this. And in turn, I can say that lactate is a function of the pyruvate concentration, okay, here, or the NADH to NAD ratio, here. So lactate can increase because of two particular mechanisms. First, if the pyruvate concentration increases due to increased flux, okay, where the NADH to NAD ratio remains 10 to 1, and that will be representative of mechanisms D and E, okay? Whereas if you have redox changes such that the NADH to NAD ratio changes, you're going to have a significant change in the, in the concentration of lactate to pyruvate, far above our normal ratio in you and I of 10 to 1, perhaps 30 to 1, etc. And in that case, you're going to have mechanisms A, B, and C. The point of this is, that hyperlactatemia with its, without significant acidosis, usually with, I'm sorry, with significant acidosis requires a change in the redox ratio that you have, a high NADH to NAD ratio, because when this occurs, 
the majority of ATP that's being produced is now in that cytosol is being hydrolyzed and will produce that H plus that can't be recycled. Whereas if that NADH to NAD ratio is normal, okay, the majority of your ATP needs that are being met are not going to come from anaerobic or glycolysis. It's actually going to come from uh, an aerobic source, usually the Krebs cycle, and you're actually going to see that there's not going to be a significant acidosis. So at this point, you can have hyperlactatemia with significant clinical acidosis, which we see, which may or may not be due to hypoxia, but will be due to an increase in that NADH to NAD ratio. Or you may have hyperlactatemia that being mild, and with our buffering capacity, that is our various buffers in the body, hemoglobin, albumin, and bicarb, may not be clinically evident, which you might see here. That is hyperlactatemia with a normal NADH to NAD ratio. So the implications of this are that one can have hyperlactatemia without significant clinical acidosis, especially if the body is not dependent on that particular pathway uh, for its ATP needs. And if you do have significant acidosis, it's almost always associated with this concept of excess lactate, first coined by Huckabee, uh, sort of type 2 lactic acidosis, uh, formalized by Cohen and Woods in their schema, and this is associated with a high NADH to NAD ratio. So which brings us to our point here. Why does lactate production occur in our patients? So mechanism one, uh, based on the schemas that I've told, schema that I've told you about, would be something called epinephrine-induced aerobic glycolysis. So the mechanism of this sort of goes as follows. Epinephrine interacts with the beta-2 receptor. In doing so, it produces cyclic AMP, and cyclic AMP, in turn, allows for the breakdown of glycogen to glucose, increasing that glycolytic flux, uh, and, and allowing you to essentially move from um, move towards pyruvate, which can go into the TCA as it normally would, as well as lactate. So not anaerobic glycolysis, where this is essentially cut off, but aerobic glycolysis, where both pathways are, are present. In addition, that cyclic AMP activates the NAK ATPases, which are present on the cell membranes of all of our, all of our body cells, in turn allows for hydrolysis of ATP to ADP, and ADP in turn acts as a stimulator of glycolytic flux in the pathway between glucose to pyruvate, again, allowing both of these things to occur. Now, because this is an aerobic glycolysis which is going on, the majority of your ATP that is being generated is again going through the Krebs cycle, so you're not going to see a significant amount of acidosis, at least that you can ascribe to this one mechanism, but you can have significant hyperlactatemia nonetheless. Mechanism two relates to sort of this idea of utilizing O2. Now, I've given you a lot of information sort of saying to you that uh, anaerobic metabolism usually does not cause um, hyperlactatemia in most clinical situations. But there is a relationship between tissue O2 and lactate production. And this is just a hypothesis, but a really nice one, which was just recently put out um, in the European, European Journal of Applied Physiology, taking sort of exercise data and trying to extrapolate it, we know from whole body exercise experiments, not unexpectedly, that as you increase the amount of work rate in a, in a given patient, the intracellular PO2 initially falls and then levels out. And so one can hypothesize is if this is a normal patient who is then subjected to a stress like sepsis, which represents an increase in your workload, okay, or mitochondrial O2 uptake, you're going to have an increase in your ratio of ADP to ATP, 
That in turn will drive lactate production, as I just told you, because of the same mechanism with epinephrine-induced glycolysis. But in turn, because we know that that intrinsic uh, discrepancy between supply and demand will lead to some degree of decrement in tissue PO2, that tissue PO2 will remain lower. And so you'll have a lower tissue PO2 associated with a higher lactate production. And this can go on again and again iteratively until you finally hit some point where your tissue O2 doesn't drop any further. Again, above that anaerobic threshold, but still associated with the low tissue O2. Mechanism three uh, is something that I think all of us think about in the ICU, especially when we see high venous O2 tension in our patients with sepsis, and that is the idea of altered mitochondrial function. That is, altered mitochondrial function would, would be able to explain essentially high tissue O2 because O2 is not being able to be utilized properly, as well as lactate production because this, the, uh, the defect is essentially in being able to use oxygen as that, as that electron sink that I talked to you about in oxidative phosphorylation. So to test this hypothesis, they actually did muscle biopsies on 24 patients with septic shock and compared them with controls. They looked at electron transport chain status as well as ATP concentrations as sort of a means of looking at mitochondrial function. And they also looked at nitric oxide, often overproduced in uh, patients with sepsis and something known to inhibit mitochondrial uh, function. What they were able to show is that, um, I don't know if this shows up at all, I'm having difficulty seeing it, but... This is norepinephrine, which is sort of in indicative of uh, the degree of uh, septic shock that the patient would be in versus nitrite concentrations. And one can see that as norepinephrine increased, in fact, nitrate concentrations also uh, were correlated with that. Complex 1 activity, which is associated with the electron transport chain and the mitochondria, decreased in function as sepsis severity increased. And ATP concentrations also were lower in those patients with, that did not survive from septic as, as opposed to controls. So again, suggesting that um, ATP production, electron cha chain transport activity, and nitric oxide production perhaps were correlated uh, and may be an explanation for why mitochondrial rewiring or mitochondrial, if you want to call it dysfunction, um, uh, might be an explanation for why we see uh, a lack of O2 utilization in some of our patients with sepsis. And I'm sorry, one of my slides actually didn't carry over, but there's a fourth mechanism um, that's there, which is um, sort of heterogeneity of the microcirculation. So we often talk about sort of global circulation in terms of increasing O2 delivery, but we know uh, from nice mathematical models that there is sort of heterogeneity in microcirculation uh, within patients with sepsis or patients with shock, such that um, if, if there is such heterogeneity, you might not be able to actually capture it with our global measures, but in fact, it could lead to anaerobic metabolism as well. So with that, an overall picture of sustained lactate production in the ICU could sort of be summarized as follows. It's largely independent of global O2 delivery, but it may be due to localized microcirculatory dysfunction, which we have difficulty at this point quantifying, but we're working on. It could be due to potential mitochondrial, maybe not dysfunction, but rewiring and shunting of blood. It could also be due to this very prominent process, which is aerobic glycolysis. So all these patients who are critically ill have high catecholamine, uh, high catecholamine um, concentration and catecholamine excess. That would drive aerobic glycolysis, glycolysis. In addition, with increasing workloads, you can see a higher ADP to ATP ratio, uh, again, driving uh, glycolysis, aerobic glycolysis as well. 
So to summarize, we could essentially say that hyperlactatemia in the ICU is in these two categories that Huckabee uh, talked about, this sort of type 1 and type 2 hyperlactatemia. Type 1, uh, I'm sorry, type, type 2 is hyperlactatemia with acidosis. Again, the NADH to NAD ratio is high. We have preferential shunting uh, through this pathway uh, uh, to the exclusion of essentially the TCA cycle where the majority of ATP that is being used by the body is coming from this pathway, leading to hydrogen uh, ion production and acidosis. And we also have this uh, type 1 hyperlactatemia, uh, originally coined by Huckabee, which is no excess lactate, no increase in that NADH to NAD ratio, or correspondingly that lactate to pyruvate ratio. We have glycolytic flux occurring, which produces lactate, but also pyruvate, which is being shunted appropriately through the TCA cycle. This is not as much associated with uh, acidosis or um, uh, uh, redox chemistry changes. Which brings us to sort of the final part of my talk, which is how should we treat hyperlactatemia and acidosis based on what I've told you so far. So these are the therapy these are the arguments made for the therapy of lactic acidosis in the ICU. Okay, and these arguments are sort of as follows. Low pH is harmful, and it depresses cardiac function. And so if I can give something, usually sodium bicarbonate, either through a drip or through my machine, the CRRT machine, hopefully we can raise systemic pH, improve cardiac function, potentially improve catecholamine sensitivity. Sort of weaker arguments, but I'm not sure about you, but I definitely use them when I'm facing a critically ill patient. Doing something pharmacologically is better than doing nothing, especially if the systemic pH is low, because it all gives us GERD, and we feel uncomfortable with it. And lastly, hyperlactemia is associated with increase in mortality. So if I can do something to decrease it, then perhaps I can improve my mortality in my patients. Whether I can do that via CRRT or via a drug uh, remains to be seen. But if I could decrease it some way, then maybe clearing the lactate or decreasing it would be of benefit to my patient. So let's look at each one of these hypotheses in more detail. So does infusion of sodium bicarbonate help? improve systemic pH. So there was actually a prospective randomized controlled trial that looked at this, 14 patients, all ventilated, all on pressors, all with an average lactate of 7.8. And they compared essentially normal saline to sodium bicarbonate and used hemodynamic, <coughs> measured hemodynamic variables using Swan-Nance catheters in all of these patients. And lo and behold, un, uh, unexpectedly, bicarbonate therapy did appear to increase the serum pH in critically ill patients by 0.14 units, okay? So that's what you got for giving a sodium bicarbonate load. What you can see here, okay, you can see that the serum bicarbonate went up, the serum pH went up compared to normal saline, and arterial PSTO2 also went up, but overall the pH improved. Okay, so this is what we want to have happen and what does happen. But did this translate into improved hemodynamics? And so I would argue from this trial, no. So both normal saline and sodium bicarbonate had the same effect on cardiac output, okay, as well as wedge pressure, suggesting that any increase in cardiac output that you saw from either one of these interventions may have been only due to preload. And the arterial pressure actually didn't change at all. Furthermore, when they did sort of their subgroup analyses or they looked specifically at those patients with higher catecholamine levels or not and, uh, or higher pressure requirements or not, sodium bicarb did not improve catecholamine sensitivity. Which brings us to the third point. Doing something when a patient is sick and very acidemic is better than doing nothing, correct? 
At least that's what I would think uh, when I'm seeing patients. So the theoretical concerns with giving sodium bicarbonate, which is the usual buffer that we give most of our patients, are sort of twofold. Number one, if you have somebody who has impaired ventilatory capacity, uh, you're going to have some degree of CO2 retention because that sodium bicarbonate eventually will be changed into CO2, which may not be able to be exhaled. And you might have hypocalcemia, uh, which can uh, potentially impair myocardium, myocardial contractility uh, or, and or cause arrhythmias. So in this particular trial, they actually did look at the ionized calcium level. You can see CO2 retention did occur, but didn't change the pH, as I showed you in the prior slide. But there was an actually 8.5% difference in the amount of uh, ionized calcium levels be uh, between uh, patients um, that were on sodium bicarbonate versus um, uh, those, were, uh, those that were on uh, normal saline. Which brings us sort of to a more global picture. What are we trying to treat when we give sodium bicarbonate? Are we trying to treat the systemic pH? Are we trying to treat the inside of the cell? So this would be sort of a, this is my very simplistic rendering of what would happen if you give somebody sodium bicarbonate with a fixed amount of ventilation where you can only excrete a certain amount of CO2. I'm not sure if this is going to work or not. No. Delay, but I give sodium bicarbonate. It's converted to CO2. CO2 is freely diffusible. May not be freely diffusible in this particular slide, but if you can believe it, freely diffusible through here actually causes hydrogen ion to be produced, which then protonates your proteins and causes a change in the protein conformation of, of, of your various cellular proteins. So this is the theory of what could potentially happen if you give somebody sodium bicarbonate. So what have they actually found? Oh no. Well, I guess all that worked for animation, and there you have it, right there. So you have a protonated protein. So from theory to practice, uh, so what do we actually see? In animal studies, this is what they've actually seen. So when you actually give sodium bicarbonate, okay, the serum pH inevitably in most of these studies goes up. But as you can see, in whether it's various tissues that are sampled, the liver, the heart, uh, the brain, the pH actually can go down. Fine, we're not animals, we're humans. So what does this translate to our actual patients that we're treating? So they actually did a retrospective study of 103 patients who had lactic acidosis. And these are the curves that they found in terms of uh, survival. So, um, you know, patients without sodium bicarbonate that was given versus sodium bicarbonate that was given. What was interesting about this, even though it's retrospective and that has its own series of flaws, is that when they excluded those patients with lower SOFA scores, as well as those patients with higher bicarbonates, people that you would expect not to benefit from sodium bicarbonate therapy, sodium bicarbonate still was deemed to be harmful, suggesting that, at least from this study, the degree of acidosis uh, really should not affect when you decide to give or not give sodium bicarbonate. What about increasing O2 delivery? So in theory, early goal-directed therapy should reduce lactate levels, but the process trial, ARISE, RIVERS, actually showed no difference in lactate levels with different resuscitation strategies. And trials to increase O2 delivery to supernormal levels actually caused harm, which is interesting because we often think about this sort of all capillaries in the body being essentially of the same density, 
having the same blood flow. But again, based on this idea of microcirculatory dysfunction and uh, potentially heterogeneity, it may be that when you try to actually increase flow in some capillaries that are hyperperfused opposed to others, there's actually less, less time for oxygen extraction, causing some degree of microshunting, which, which would seem to make sense with what we see here. And then, interestingly, when they used esmolol, which should technically, as a beta blocker, decrease cardiac output, and based on our prior understanding of how lactate physiology worked, would be expected to increase lactate, actually trials of esmolol decreased lactate production in line with what we would see uh, if we I buy into this idea of epinephrine-induced like aerobic glycolysis. And sort of curiously as well, those patients that are on different drips, vasopressin versus epinephrine, those patients that are on epinephrine drips actually have higher lactate levels as well. So what about this controversial question? Something I've often called to the bedside, and an argument I often lose because I'm me. So uh, what about using CRRT to clear the lactate? Well, lactate production in the body is around 15 to 20 millimoles per kg, so in the average person, around 1,400 millimoles per day. So there were a group of nephrologists, I think, that actually wanted to study this, and they actually took people, they injected lactic acid into them, and they measured over a time, area over under the curve sort of analysis, looked at total lactate clearance in 10 different patients, and then put these patients, had these patients on hemodiafiltration, uh, and looked at the clearance through that mechanism as well, and they found that when they compared the clearance through the filter as opposed to the total clearance, only 3% of the lactate was actually being cleared. So very, a very minimal amount was being cleared, which may not be a big deal, but there are some data that actually lactate can be used as an alternative fuel source. So it's not just this end byproduct. It actually serves a number of different roles, perhaps in cell signaling, perhaps as an energy substrate. There's even um, data that uh, acidosis and lactate can be potentially protective in some cases. So is there a potential harm for lactate removal, i.e., are we to getting rid of a potentially adaptive response? Which brings us to potential future directions. So treatments thus far trying to lower the lactate concentration have been relatively disappointing in terms of their mortality benefits. So there have been things that have lowered the lactate uh, concentration in a given patient but have not correlated with essentially an improvement in mortality. And that might be because... You know, again, we have heterogeneity of circulatory dysfunction. So not focusing on the macro circulation and trying to improve the variables we normally deal with in the Fick equation, but looking at specific variables within the microcirculation that we should be able to essentially quantify, but haven't been able to do so thus far. Um, and so this is really an area of interest and treat, uh, and, and, and um, uh, uh, sort of research, sort of finding ways to identify abnormalities in the microcirculation, whether it be through ultrasound, whether it be through use of gadolinium uh, contrast. Um, and then there's sort of this interesting sort of animal work that's come out. So in sepsis, we know that sodium-hydrogen exchange is uh, severely impaired at the level of the cell membrane. And so when this occurs, you essentially get calcium overload, you get uh, problems with arrhythmias, uh, maybe after depolarizations, as well as problems in such, essentially with apoptosis uh, and myocardial performance. And so they did a study in essentially a porcine model where they gave this sodium hydrogen pump inhibitor, and they looked at um, sort of pulmonary artery pressure as well as pulmonary vascular resistance, and they were able to show, in fact, a beneficial uh, response uh, uh, with this, uh, in addition to showing actually a decrease in lactate production. So this is something that's actually been funded and probably will be going towards uh, human trials at some point.
So my conclusions, lactate production does not reflect merely tissue hypoxia. It re represents a coordinated adaptive response to stressors. Lactate production in our ICU patients is multifactorial. Okay? It's not only anaerobic. High lactate production usually reflects the severity of illness due to high catecholamine levels and thus illness. And why it may explain why trying to treat the lactate alone has failed therapeutically, not only from a pharmacological standpoint, an acid-base standpoint, or even a dialysis standpoint. Uh, treatment of lactic acidosis with bicarbonate may be helpful, but continues to be practiced until we have a better alternative. And I would argue, at least from my perspective, that clearing the lactate in CRT is quantitatively not useful. It may actually adapt, uh, remove an adaptive response and may be harmful for our patients. So we should potentially think carefully about why we're using it. So maybe for the acidosis, but definitely to clear the lactate, I'm not sure that's the, that's the, that's the correct indication. So with that, I'll end, and I'll take any questions if anybody has any. Thank you so much. Sanjeev, a uh, quick question about uh, catecholamines and yeah. lactate that you brought up. Do you think the catecholamines in and of themselves versus, as you mentioned, vasopressin uh, or other um, uh, therapies uh, uh, is harmful or is it just reflective of the severity of illness, as you also kind of suggest? So I, I think if you, if people have used, uh, tried to compare, they, they found different levels of... Um, They've definitely found different levels of lactate using vasopressin and epinephrine, but I, I'm not sure that I would tailor my uh, therapy based on the lactate, because I think, again, it's the severity of illness. Thank you very much for that awesome talk. Um, when you said that CRT you wouldn't use to clear lactate, but maybe you would use it to help with the acidosis, Aren't you just providing bicarb to take care of the acidosis when you're doing CRT? Correct. So why do we think it's okay to use CRT for acidosis when we think that providing a bicarb drip is potentially harmful? I don't think it is, but I'm forced to do it every day. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't think it is. And every time I try to argue it, I, they show me the pH, and they're like, would you want your mother to live with that pH? <laughs> There's not much that I can say to that, so I actually give in usually. Yeah. So CRT is just a bicarb bath? Is that what we're saying? What about uh, the that, clearing the anions? Yeah. Uh, for the treatment of acidosis, CRT can be considered just like a bicarb drip without the sodium load. If you're from the acid base standpoint, but of course CRT allows you to clear many other different substances beyond that. Some which may be helpful, some which may be harmful. So, gotcha. but it should be you are giving bicarbonate through the machine. It's essentially the same as giving a sodium bicarbonate drip, but this time, instead of a sodium load with that bicarbonate drip, you're essentially just giving the bicarbonate alone because I'm able to independently vary the sodium. Okay. Low IV fluid resuscitation, uh -huh. I think, is very, very important. Thank you, Thank Sanjeev. You so That's great. <laughs>